Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara, and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. Every now and then I hear these stories about folks in prison preparing to be released after decades behind bars, only to be picked up by immigration and customs enforcement and deported to countries they no longer have any connections to. There are some pretty famous cases of this happening for people coming out of San Quentin State Prison, for example, because Even though many Bay Area cities say they're sanctuary cities for immigrants, California prisons notify ICE of immigrants in their custody and hand over anyone ICE wants to deport, including legal residents with green cards. So today, we're sharing the story of how immigrants are funneled from state prison, including those here in the Bay Area, and into the federal deportation system, even when their convictions have been overturned. It's a story from our friends at the California Report magazine about how the federal government is refusing to recognize state criminal justice reforms that are dismissing old convictions and letting people out of prison. Here's KQED's senior immigration editor, Tyke Hendricks. I first meet Sandra Castaneda over the phone from the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. A detainee at Stewart Detention Center. It's one of those prison telephone systems. The connection isn't great, and the calls only last 10 minutes. So Sandra has to keep calling me back. Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, yes. For much of Sandra's 19 years in state prison, she was less than an hour's drive from Los Angeles. And her relatives often visited her. But in Georgia, she has no one. And the fear of deportation to Mexico is hanging over her every day. That would be another kind of life sentence, a lifelong separation from her family and everything she's ever known in the U.S. There's a chance that I will get deported. What am I going to do with it? You have exceeded the allowable time for this call. Goodbye. Sandra's 40 years old. She's been locked up for half her life, 
first in prison and now in ICE detention. It all started one night in 2002 when a teenage girl was shot and killed, and Sandra was there. But to understand what happened, we need to go back even further. For years, Sandra's family straddled the border with Mexico. When she was little, her parents settled in L.A., leaving her with relatives in the border city of Mexicali. But when Sandra was nine, an aunt and uncle brought her and her sister to the U.S. on green cards and raised them along with their own kids in L.A. Explícame un poco de, bueno, cómo fue como, como niña. Ella. Sandrita era una niña muy calmadita. That's her aunt, Virginia Reyes. She tells me Sandra was calm, not a difficult kid. Virginia and her husband owned a clothing factory in South Central, assembling garments for the fashion industry. They had more than 20 workers, and Virginia and her husband put in really long hours building the business to support the family. That left Sandra to fend for herself a lot. Having their own factory, you know, it was a pretty much 24-7 job for them. They leave early, they come real late, they work seven days a week. So it was always, you know, work, 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 work. In junior high school, Sandra made friends with some tough kids who were part of a gang. Her aunt tried to protect her by putting her in a Catholic school, but it didn't help. I was already intrigued with it by the time I got moved to a Catholic school. So that's when everything kind of started me hanging out with uh, with gang members and stuff. For the most part, she never got in trouble with the law. But that changed on the night of May 10, 2002, when she was 20. Court records show Sandra testified she and some friends were heading to Taco Bell in her van around midnight. And as she drove, a guy in the van told her to slow down. Suddenly, he started firing out the window. Sandra's cautious talking about the crime because she's worried about retaliation. So I ask her immigration lawyer, Anup Prasad, with the Asian Law Caucus, to tell me more. One of the people in the van thought they saw someone in the neighborhood who was from a rival gang, asked her to slow down. She didn't really know what was going on. Uh, Slowed down, the person uh, pulled out a gun and started shooting from the car. The bullets hit two people who were sitting on the front steps of an apartment building. An 18-year-old was shot in the leg, and he recovered. But the 15-year-old girl beside him was killed. In a panic, Sandra drove on. And then she stopped a couple of blocks later. Uh, Police were already there on the scene, and she was the only one who was arrested. Everyone else ran away. Sandra was taken to jail. A California law at the time, known as the felony murder rule, allowed prosecutors to charge her with murder because she was driving the van, even though she didn't actually kill anyone. Often you see across the state, anyone who was remotely connected or even present at the scene would get hit with a murder charge. Sandra went on trial. But her Aunt Virginia didn't think the police detectives were doing enough to find the real killer. So Virginia put up flyers all over town with his photo on them. Nothing. Then one day after Sandra's trial was over, Virginia says she saw the man at a car wash. Finalmente, después de que Sandra este, fue sentenciada, encontré a la persona en un car wash. She says she called the police and Sandra's lawyer, 
But they told her, oh, the case is closed. I couldn't believe it, she says. The L.A. Police Department now says the case is still open, but no one else has ever been arrested or prosecuted for the shooting. Sandra was convicted of second-degree murder and attempted murder, sentenced to 40 years to life. Virginia wondered, how is it possible that the actual killer was still walking free and her niece was going to be locked up for so many years? At first, when Sandra went to prison back in 2003, she was angry. But over time, she developed a new perspective on the crime. It was not a planned situation. It just kind of happened. But I still feel, you know, um, that I did have a part because I was the driver, you know. So today, I know that back then I had choices. But as a young person, I didn't know that I did. Today, I do understand. And I take full responsibility for my part. In prison, Sandra joined peer support groups. She took college courses, worked in the carpentry shop, and she helped women who were dying in prison through leading a hospice program. I got to know who I was as a person. So um, I'm not bitter at all. You know, I mean, prison made me the woman that I am today, you know. She learned she's resilient and a go-getter, someone not afraid to speak up for what she believes, someone who can advocate for others. Then, in 2018, something happened that Sandra never expected. New law will soon impact hundreds of murder cases in California. SB 14 Citing constitutional concerns, the state legislature overturned the felony murder rule. That's the law that led to Sandra's conviction, even though she didn't shoot anyone. The reform was part of a California movement to reduce mass incarceration and overpunishment, which disproportionately impact people of color. SB 1437 essentially gives a second chance to people serving prison time for murders they didn't actually commit. For Sandra, it meant she could ask the court to vacate her murder conviction and resentence her. She was anxious. She tried to manage her expectations. As a lifer, she knew she might die in prison. But, I mean, there's always that little hope in there, you know? And I think as human beings, we want to believe, you know, that something good is going to come out. And things began to line up. Governor Gavin Newsom commuted her sentence, recognizing her rehabilitation in prison. That made her eligible for parole. And then something even bigger happened— a California judge granted her petition and dismissed her murder conviction entirely, giving her a much lesser charge. Finally, she was ordered released. Sandra couldn't stop crying. I was worse than the Yorona because I, I just couldn't believe it. California's criminal justice system was saying she could go home and build a life as a free woman. But federal law says if an immigrant like Sandra, who's not a citizen, commits a serious crime, they can lose their legal status and be deported. Now, California has a sanctuary law that prevents police and sheriffs from cooperating in immigration enforcement. But as Sandra's lawyer Anoop explains, there's a loophole for prisons. 
and they will actively work to turn over anyone that ICE says they want to come arrest, even if the person's been exonerated. It's really just an absurd policy. Coming up, why immigrants like Sandra can still get deported by the federal government, even when the state of California says they're free to go. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay. We've been hearing a story from the California Report magazine about how immigrants can be sent from California prison into the federal deportation system, even after their convictions have been overturned. Here's KQED's senior immigration editor, Tyge Hendricks. State prison officials say it's not their job to decide whether someone's deportable. They simply comply when ICE wants to take custody of a person coming out of prison. And so people like Sandra get caught in this tug of war between the state and the federal government. Federal immigration law says having a green card is a privilege. And if you seriously break the law, that privilege can be taken away. Over the years, the list of deportable crimes has grown longer. To understand that, we need to go back to the 1990s. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more, by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before. President Bill Clinton signed two new laws that vastly expanded the list of crimes that could get a person deported. People can lose their green cards for a laundry list of reasons, like shoplifting, drug charges, and failure to appear in court. Some of these have actually been decriminalized by states like California. California, over the last decade or so, has recognized that the lock up mentality led to a ballooning of our prison and jail population, but didn't actually result in safer communities. That's Rose Kahn, an attorney with the Immigrant Legal Resource Center in San Francisco. She says the way federal immigration law is enforced should be in sync with state criminal justice reforms. A conviction that's been dismissed at the state level where you have DAs of all political stripes saying, hey, this doesn't need to be on someone's record, should not be on someone's record, (laughs) plain and simple. But that's not happening. 
ICE lawyers and federal immigration judges are still pushing to deport people like Sandra based on convictions that have been reduced or even dismissed. It's hard to know how many people are caught in this situation, but some experts estimate it affects thousands nationally. For Sandra, all this meant that on the day she was released from prison after serving 19 years, a new legal battle was just beginning. And that brings us back to that July day in 2021. At 8 a.m., a friend of Sandra's named Colby Lenz pulled up outside the state prison in Chino. Colby's an advocate with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, and she had volunteered to drive Sandra home to her family in L.A. But at 9, Colby watched through the fence as guards walked Sandra out and made her get into the ice van. Colby says Sandra's friends inside the prison watched, too. Some of Sandra's close friends had come as close as they could and were calling out to her and basically telling her that they loved her and certainly distressed at what they were seeing. The van drove Sandra to the ICE field office in San Bernardino. Colby followed in her car. By 10, Sandra was in a holding cell, and Colby was making urgent calls to Anoop, the lawyer we met earlier. By this point, he'd agreed to take on Sandra's immigration case. Anoop and I were tag-teaming, calling the ICE office, and both talked to some of the officers there, trying to convince them that this was not a legal detention. Anoop even got the L.A. District Attorney's Office to call ICE and explain that Sandra's conviction had been vacated, so she was not deportable. But ICE was determined to keep her in custody, and they were looking for space in an immigration detention center. And so I was on the phone, I remember the deportation officer, and he's saying, you know, I don't know if we're going to find a bed, and if we don't, uh, we'll release her on an ankle monitor. Around three in the afternoon, Sandra says, an officer came and attached an electronic monitor to her ankle. The idea was to release her from detention but keep her under surveillance. She thought maybe she'd be able to go home after all. And then he came back and said, give me your leg. He said, I'm going to cut that off of you. And I was like, why? And he said, because I found you a spot. He'd found a detention center with a bed for Sandra. The officer took off the monitor. Sandra's hopes of freedom were dashed. And I was like, where are you taking me? And then he said, Atlanta. And I said, you're going to send me to Georgia? Colby was still parked outside the ICE office. It was infuriating and devastating, and I just felt so terrible for her and for her family, of course. At 9 p.m., Sandra was transferred to an ICE office in L.A. She says she spent the night sitting on a hard bench. At 3 in the morning, they drove her to the airport and handed her off to two plainclothes officers who took her on a 6 a.m. flight to Atlanta. She still hadn't been able to talk to her lawyer, Anoop. I got a call from her the next day that she was in Georgia. I knew it was probably Stewart. And immediately my heart sank a little bit. Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, is operated for ICE by a private prison company called Core Civic that's been sued numerous times. A new report alleges multiple women were sexually assaulted at the immigrant detention facility in Lumpkin, Georgia. We turn now to Georgia, where a 44-year-old immigrant from Mexico died last week at Stewart Detention Center, one of the largest immigration jails in the United States. In the documents, the facility's conditions were described by some staff as, quote, a ticking time bomb. A day and a half after she was released from prison, Sandra arrived at Stewart. It was midnight when she was booked in. 
after everybody's like, you know, you're in the worst one. You are in the worst one. Immigration detention is not supposed to be prison. It's civil detention of people awaiting deportation hearings, not punishment for a crime. But Sandra finds conditions at Stewart a lot worse than a California prison. She's stuck in one room with 23 other people. She doesn't have a job or classes, no routine. A lot of mold in there, you know, a lot of mold. Sometimes it'll be hot, sometimes it'll be freezing. When I ask an ICE spokeswoman about these conditions, she tells me the facility has passed inspections. And she says, quote, ICE is committed to ensuring that all those in the agency's custody reside in safe, secure, and humane environments. While Sandra's adjusting at Stewart, Anoop goes into overdrive. He files briefs in immigration court to try and get her released, but ICE lawyers fight him at every turn. Rather than acknowledging that a state court had vacated the conviction, ICE aggressively pursued deportation. And Anoop's afraid that as the weeks turn into months, Sandra will get so discouraged, so weary of living behind bars, that she'll give up and let ICE deport her. That's what happens to a lot of immigrants in detention. The system at every step is designed to wear people down. But Sandra's not giving up. In fact, she's found a new sense of purpose. During her years in California prisons, she learned advocacy skills. And in Georgia, she's not afraid to speak up. The manager would sometimes, you know, be talking about the girls and calling them bitches and, you know, disrespectful. I mean, and, and I would talk to them and I would be like, why are you guys doing that? Like, that's ugly, you know? She files grievances. She questions the COVID protocols, pushing for testing and social distancing measures when women get sick. And being bilingual, Sandra steps in to advocate for the women in ICE custody who only speak Spanish. One of the counselors told me to stop helping them people, that they needed to do things for themselves. And I told her, well, they don't speak English, and, and I'm not representing them at court. I'm only asking for toilet paper, uh, shampoo. You know, they need a request to get underwear. As Sandra's standing up for other women inside the detention center, Anoop's advocating for her on the outside. I kept asking her, are you doing okay? Like, can you keep fighting this out? And every time she would say, you know, if they want to take my papers, my green card, they're going to have to take it. I'm not going to give it to them. Her resilience really allowed us to just keep going. Her friend Colby, the advocate for women prisoners, stays in touch through video calls. She tells me Sandra showed her surgical masks that other detained women doctored up to read hashtag free Sandra because she's such an inspiration. She would come on wearing it to show me and was kind of embarrassed that they were doing this. But it, it showed that, you know, she was part of building more of a collective culture in there and a culture of standing up for each other. Sandra spent an entire year in ICE detention. That makes it 20 years in custody for a murder she didn't commit. Then, finally, some news. First a California judge reduces Sandra's sentence even further to a misdemeanor. Then in July 2022, an immigration judge in Georgia rules Sandra is not deportable. By the grace of God, you know, by the grace of God. She's thrilled she could get out. But she's also wary. She's been on this roller coaster before. Do I get happy or do, you know, like like it was just like the, the mixed emotions again, you know? Sure enough, ISA's lawyers say they plan to appeal, 
and they want to keep Sandra locked up while they do. Weeks go by before she gets a hearing where Anub asks the judge to release her on bond. When the judge made the decision that he was going to give it to me, I was like, I just started crying. And so in August, the day finally arrives that Sandra has been awaiting for half her life. She flies home to L.A., where her family surrounds her with hugs at the airport. I didn't know if, you know, if it was reality or dream. Even my cousin, he kept on looking at me like, it feels like I'm dreaming, Sandra. But it it was emotional and, and happy, you know. Sandra's aunt Virginia is overwhelmed with emotion, too. It was a lot of years of waiting, she says. Hello? Hi, Sandra. Sandra's 40 years old. She's finally free. And she has a lot of catching up to do. I'm barely learning as I'm going. Yeah, everyone, I think, struggles when they come back trying to figure out how to use the phone. Her sister buys Sandra her first cell phone and teaches her how to use FaceTime. And Sandra gets on a video call with Anoop, who's in San Francisco. How has it been? What have you been up to uh, the last couple of days? Uh, well, yesterday, well, you know, I got here uh, very overwhelming, but um, my brother-in-law made me some ribs, you know, so... Um, I got to eat real good, so that was a blessing, yeah. you know. Um, my family, my sister, and my little nieces and nephews, very excited to have me there, you know. Yeah. Yes. I go meet her and her Aunt Virginia in person for the first time. Come in. Thank you so much. Come in, the women prisoner support group that Colby works with has set Sandra up in an apartment. You know, we have our bathroom. A bathroom with a door she can close. It was nice to... You know, to take a shower in a real, you know, shower. And a bedroom of her own. This is mine right now. Uh Virginia has cooked her plenty of meals since she got out of prison. But today, what Sandra really wants is McDonald's. The chicken nuggets, let me see. How many pieces do you have in the chicken nuggets? So we all go out to lunch. When we sit down, Sandra takes photos of her meal to send to her friends in state prison. They've been asking for glimpses of her life out in the world. They always want to know, like, what do you eat? What are you doing? You know, so everybody's so happy for me. <laughs> but she also has her mind on all the tasks she has to tackle next. She needs a driver's license, for starters. I know how to drive. Well, I did know how to drive. I, mean, I was a good driver, but I'm a little scared right now. So I'm going to have to go practice in a lot or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Virginia says Sandra just needs a day behind the wheel, and it'll come back. Eventually, Sandra hopes to apply for citizenship. Her older sister became a U.S. citizen while Sandra was in prison. And was there ever any conversation about you getting citizenship? Well, no, because um, I was 20 years old when I got arrested, you know, so I didn't know that it's so important to be able to get that citizenship if you're able to. But today I know better. (laughs) I know better. Like so many people released from prison, Sandra's working hard to start a new chapter of her life. But ICE lawyers are still trying to get her deported. And the thing is, the immigration appeals bench could very well agree. They've ruled in the past that most of the time it doesn't matter whether a state court vacated someone's criminal conviction. 
The fact that a person like Sandra was convicted of a crime in the first place is reason enough to deport them. Advocates are trying to change that, meeting with leaders in the Department of Justice, which oversees the immigration courts, to insist they honor state criminal justice reforms. Anoop says they're also calling on the Biden administration to move away from the harsh immigration enforcement of the Trump era. ICE can also just say, we're not going to choose to go after and deport these people. We don't need Congress to even step in here and fix it. It's just one of those things that the Biden administration can just fix tomorrow. And finally, because so far change is not happening on the federal level, advocates are trying to close the loophole here in California. They're urging the state prison system to stop transferring people to ICE. A bill to do that called the Vision Act failed in the legislature last year. But Anoop says Governor Newsom has the power to make the change. California needs to make a choice about if it's going to continue to turn people who have been ordered released over to ICE. When I call Sandra a few months after she gets home to see how it's going, I catch her in the car. (laughs) I got my driver's license yesterday. Congratulations. It's kind of ironic. Driving is what got Sandra into trouble all those years ago. But today, it's a concrete step in taking charge of her life, even though some things are still out of her control, like ICE trying to deport her. These people are, like, still messing with my life, even though I already paid for my crime, you know? But I try not to think about it because it's just, like, that energy, you know? So I'm just, like, focus on what I need to do right now. And Sandra's imagining ways she can use her own life experience to counsel other immigrants who are caught between state criminal reforms and federal deportation policies. She's thinking about all the support she's gotten along the way, and how to pay it forward. That was KQED's senior immigration editor, Taiki Hendricks. Her story was edited by me, Sasha Coca, and the California Report magazine is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Our sound engineers are Christopher Beal and Brendan Willard, and our intern is Jessica Carissa. Thanks this week to Victoria Mauleon, Monica Campbell, and Scott Schaefer. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines their pursuit of good health. On the web at chcf.org backslash lbca. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.